Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. We're doing something a little bit different this week on the show. Instead of having a pop culture panel in to talk about uh, Justin Bieber's driving skills or the color of Beyonce's hair this week, we're, we're settling on one guest, but what a guest. Ellen Hollinghurst is an English novelist who won the Man Booker Prize in 2004 for The Line of Beauty. His new novel is called The Sparsholt Affair. Spanning seven transformative decades, it plums the complex relationships of a remarkable family. It was an immediate bestseller upon its publication in England and was hailed by The Observer as, quote, perhaps Hollinghurst's most beautiful novel yet. Do you read reviews? Welcome, first of all. Nice to see you. Do you read reviews? Do they mean anything to you? I read them less and less, actually. Yeah. Not out of um, timidity, but somehow I've, I feel more detached from the whole process now. I mean, I bring out a book so rarely, usually about every six years, that I'm generally rather fascinated to see how the, how the poor thing does when it goes out into the world. Um, but I've noticed with this last one, I've read a few. I've been warned off reading one or two by right. a kind friend. Um, I got a general sense of what's being said. And, of course, publicists pick out the very nicest bits for you. Um, often uh, the nice bits precede a little change of direction in the That's review, right. you know. Um, so um, I haven't been studying them closely, no. And what do you say when you said earlier in the answer... Uh, that you, you have changed a little bit in, in that. So that would imply that you did used to read them at, at one point. And, and what was the change, do you think? I find it hard to say. It must be another of the unexpected things about getting older, <laughs> um, being very concerned about public opinion once, and now perhaps just feeling more confidently that I'm doing what I want to do and hoping people like it. But... I mean, there's a danger of arrogance in that. And um, I think some people who claim never to read their reviews are actually um, sort of frightened of having having their vanity punctured. Um, right. I think that on occasion, you can really learn something from a, even from a not very favorable review if it's mm. extremely intelligently and perceptively written. Well, you have been talking about this book for a little while now. It's been out in Britain for some time. You're just starting the North American leg of this tour. And I'm interested if... With the with the gift of time, so you finished the book probably a year ago or so, yep, maybe, yep. editing things, whatever it is that happens. It's a long process. Then you put it away for a while, and now you have to talk about it. Again, with people who have read the book, are you learning anything about the book from the, from the reviews and from the people you've had to talk to about? I think you do. The book simplifies in a way, I think, always when it when it's read and talked about. And especially if it's quite a long book like this one, which has these different episodes, mm -hmm. know, it covers a period of over 70 years. And there are bits of it which um, reviewers and interviewers and so on are, are likely to focus on and things which they pull out for sort of thematic reasons. And there are probably other areas of the book, and, and maybe they're sort of not not such essential areas of the book, uh, which actually nobody ever comments on at all in a review. And you, you sort of half forget that they're there. <laughs> now, you started off as a poet. And yes. that was your first love, poetry? It was. I mean, as a, as a teenager, I wrote poems with appalling ease and abundance. <laughs> and um, it was quite a cool thing to do in my school, actually, in the sort of late 60s. Um, I mean, I started off writing kind of Wordsworthian sonnets and things. And then I 
we were all exposed to uh, the wasteland and so forth. And I realized there was great kudos in writing incomprehensible poetry. So <laughs> I did a lot of that. And yeah, I think I thought if I was going to be any kind of writer, I, I perhaps would be a poet. And I did have later on poems published you know, in my student years and after that, and was indeed signed up for a sort of half-written book of poems by Faber and Faber, which was very prestigious in uh, 1985. But from the moment I signed that contract, I never wrote another poem. And and why is that? Do you think that it's fear or or what was it? I think the fact was that the year before I started writing my first novels, Swimming right. Pool Library, I mean, I tried writing others and abandoned them, but this was the, the first one I knew I was going to go the distance yeah. with, you know. And I think actually all my sort of energies and... Um, were being redirected into this larger thing and possibly images or ideas I might have looked at in, with a view to how I could make a poem out of them. I was instead sort of funneling them all into the, into the, uh, into the novel. I, I think something like that must have happened. It was just a sort of change of track. And I've, you know, I miss write, writing poems, but I, I now can't quite remember what it feels like to have a, a, a poem-shaped idea come to you. Right. Um, and, but, the, and, you know, if you're lucky, that a poem can be over by lunchtime, whereas a novel <laughs> takes me about four years. <laughs> I'm speaking with Alan Hollinghurst. Uh, his book is The Sparse Holt Affair. It's in stores right now and a big bestseller in many parts of the world. We're just getting it here now. Uh, we're talking about poetry. We're talking about that. Uh, you started off also writing short stories or you wrote a number of short stories that, from what I understand, kind of came together to point you in the direction of writing a novel. Yes, no, it wasn't quite like that. I mean, I, I've, I think I'm naturally not a short story writer. I mean, it's such a, a merciless form, the short, short story. Everything in it has to count. Um, and, of course, I believe in sort of relevance and economy, but I also like the fact in a novel that you, you can sort of expand into yeah into other perhaps not as utterly essential things, but which nonetheless sort of enrich or illuminate the, the story. Um, I think it was after writing my novel, The Line of Beauty, which was the biggest book I'd then written, and I found it a great, great effort. <laughs> and at the end of that, I thought, I just cannot put myself through this again. And right. I seem to have quite a few ideas for short stories. Um, and I wrote one. Um, and then others that I sketched out did just what you've described. They seem to be a sort of urging, uh, itching to uh, to get together. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> and um, and so I wrote my next novel, The Strangest Child, which, like the Sparshalt Affair, is in five sections, often with big gaps in between them. And in a way, there's there's the sort of traces of a, a book of short stories mm -hmm. in there. I mean, they, they approach a long narrative from different points of view at different times and so on. Um, so I think the short story thing got sort of swallowed up in, back, back into the novel. Um, and I think I've, strictly speaking, only written three short stories in my life. Right. And, and what pushed you towards writing novels? I mean, the, the, the books are sprawling. This one covers seven decades, starting in about 1940. Uh, and, and it's a massive undertaking. It, it is. It is. It's a massive yes. undertaking. So what pushed you towards starting to write novels after, you know, finishing a poem by lunchtime and yeah. then having the rest of the day free? I think I I got interested in it quite probably when I was a student and I I had these, you know, subsequently aborted novels. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, another thing about that, that tempo of writing is that um, when you're young, you're 
ideas change very quickly. And so you're liable to grow out of something which takes as much time and stamina as a novel <laughs> uh, quite early on. And I think that's one reason I abandoned a whole, whole lot of them. Um, but I suppose I got more and more interested in reading novels. I liked the idea of the kind of immersive thing about sort of long-form fiction. And I liked um, the immersive thing about writing it and actually having this alternative world that right. I was going into and messing around in for, you know, I think I've never written a book in less than two and a half years, and usually it takes me three or four years. Um, and it's a strange feeling when you get to the end of it and think, actually, I can't can't go and play around there any longer. <laughs> you know. uh, so um, I do find it a, a compelling form, and, and, and I love the sort of further dimension mm -hmm. um, to life that it offers. And I think it seems to me in ways that, you know, you'd have to ask my shrink about rather That's right. me. That's you know, right. it's an, it, it is a way one transforms all sorts of things in one's own life into something out there, something objective. How do you maintain interest in a project that you're working at? Do, I, I assume you write every day or pretty much every day. And you're dealing with the same characters. You talk about being immersed in that world. But after two and a half years, are there points where you put them down and go, you know what, I don't care what Billy's doing today <laughs> in the book. I just can't think about um, it. Well, it's true, yes. There are different phases in, in the, the writing of the book. Um, and though they take me that long to write, I'm, there will be sometimes quite long periods um, when I'm not actually doing it. Right. And I'm or, you know, life might come yeah, intervene. Yeah, yeah. Or, um, <laughs> and I, sometimes I feel I'm just waiting for something to cl clarify in my mind to see how I can um, go on. Um, What's more important to you when you're beginning uh, a book? You're, you're about to start off. You've come up with an idea. Is the beginning or the end more important for you? Well, I never actually start writing chapter one until I've got a pretty clear sense of the, the structure of the whole book right. ahead of me. Um, when I first feel a book beginning, I sort of start a new notebook and just bung into it anything that I just have a feeling might have something to do with the book, right. which could be tiny fragments of description or little bits of dialogue, or it might be bigger plot things, or it, it might be um, sketching out a scene, or um, so it's very, in this very miscellaneous mm -hmm. way, and I sort of build up the world of the book um, until it reaches a sort of... Um, density and, and a, a narrative has emerged out of it. I very rarely begin with the narrative. The narrative mm. sort of emerges from the details <laughs> of the world in a strange, strange way. Um, and so when I start, I would have a pretty clear idea, certainly of the earlier parts of the book and sort of important points in the, the later things sort of in, in position. Um, I mean, I think it'd be terribly boring if you knew exactly what was going to right. happen in a book before you began. And there must be certain kinds of book, like certain police procedures. I, I would think song, thrillers where, and where that kind of thing. Everything has to be very exactly plotted. Well, they are uh, like a puzzle, yeah. you know, and if you have the one missing piece, exactly. it affects everything yes, else. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I think the last couple of books I've written have been, in a way, a bit like um, puzzles, but puzzles which don't ever, ever get a, a very neat <laughs> solution. You know. um, and I like the, uh, you know, it's very reassuring to me to have the plan right. for a book, um, but, but the element of improvisation and the unexpected is really very important. Um, and you're not locked into whatever you've started four years ago no, when you and, started and, writing. You know, I take it as a good sign that when I'm 
writing and discovering all sorts of interest in the material that I hadn't anticipated when it was just a sketch. When we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Ellen Hollinghurst. We'll get a little further into the Sparsholt affair. Stay with us. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. In studio, we have Alan Hollinghurst. Uh, his new book is called The Sparsholt Affair. Uh, it's a novel. It is a sprawling novel covering 70 years. There is scandal, and we have to talk about your handling of the scandal. And we live in a world now that is so scandal-ridden. As we sit here talking today, uh, the President of the United States is you know, suing porn stars, and there's all sorts of scandal in the world, and you handle it in a very interesting way in the book. So we'll get to that in just a little bit. Uh, I want to continue sort of where we were, where we left off, talking about uh, the actual physical writing of all your novels. So they take years to write. You are uh, someone who will take a break here and there. But is, is there a point at which you go back and, and occasionally say, okay, I've started here. This this character isn't working. And is it easy to remove bits and pieces of your books? Or, or is that something that comes after it's all said and done? And then you go back and you look at the thing in its entirety. I've very rarely done that, and I think that the planning is sufficiently kind of rigorous to mean that I, because I write terribly slowly, and I hate the idea of wasting months writing something which is not not going to yep. have a place in the, the, the finished article. So um, generally, um, I mean, I think actually on this last book, I did, um, I was persuaded by several people to drop a chapter from it, right. which actually I thought was almost the best thing in the book. Well, but, maybe that's a uh, short story. Maybe <laughs> you release maybe it, it as a short story. story. Well, I think I might, yes, release it separately, <laughs> a sort of director's cut or something. I don't know. Um, I never show anything to anybody until I've got a sort of complete draft of the book really? ready yeah. that I'm you know, fairly satisfied with. But at that point, I very much value editorial intervention mm -hmm. you know, from my editors here in New York and in uh, London and from Two or three friends whom I especially trust. Uh, are they readers? You have, uh, yeah, yeah, and and who will read it really kind of ruthlessly, mm -hmm. you know, which is what you need. Um, and there's a danger of people sort of just saying, "Oh, it's all marvelous," and so on. Well, I know it's not. It, yeah. you know, it really needs more more attention. Um, and if you haven't shown anything to anybody, there can be all, all kinds of little errors that you haven't noticed at all. I, I think there's a real, especially I would imagine with something that is as sprawling as this is, covering 70 years, uh, you might have a tendency to uh, get so deep into the story that you assume the audience knows things, the reader is going to know things that aren't obvious in the book. I write nonfiction books uh, about film, by and large. And uh, the the longest I've worked on a book is about two and a half, almost three years. And I had to use readers, independent readers afterwards, because I was so involved in the story and I knew everything about it. I could no longer objectively look at the piece and see if it made, even if it made sense after a while. I know exactly what you mean. And I think this is a, a problem with all kinds of writing. And and critical things too, you know, writing an essay or an introduction to a reissue of a novel by a favorite writer or something, a, a book I'm terribly familiar with and all the issues in it. Yeah. But you're, you have to remember that you're presenting these to people to whom they're going to be completely fresh. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, so I, that being too close to, to the material is, is a real hazard. And I think too with writing things as I have done, particularly in my last two books, which um, are set in earlier historical mm -hmm. periods. Um, and I mean, I 
I rather dread research in <laughs> historical fiction because of its its tendency to to shriek research. Uh, right, when you right. Read, um, and often people put in completely unnecessary uh, details. And then he filled up his Mont Blanc, <laughs> you know, uh, nib with ink that came from yeah, exactly yeah, describing how, where everything came from, how it was made, <laughs> how much it cost. Um, and it's completely unnecessary. And I, I always feel that real verisimilitude in writing about the past comes from a sort of just writing about it as sort of casually as one would about, you know, as naturally as one would about the present. And after all, people living in the past weren't encumbered by this tremendous sense of how quaint everything they were doing was going to be to the people of the future. Ken Russell uh, uh, directed a film called The Devils. I remember and, it. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's the, that's the book I spent three years writing. It was a book about the devils. Wow. And... One of the things I thought was really fascinating about that uh, story of him designing that movie, because it's a it's a very contemporary looking film. And he said, well, at any point in history, people think that they're living at the absolute cusp of the modern world. They are at the pinnacle of the modern world. So when you see a historical film and the castles are kind of falling apart and, and, you know, everyone's got ripped clean, nobody (laughs) thought that at the time. It's it's about presenting history. Yes. In a in a modern context, people yes. that whatever the period in history, that is the most modern period of history for those characters. I learned great lessons about this from uh, from Alice Munro actually, yeah. um, who just has this uncanny thing. Right, right. She doesn't explain, um, nor does she write it in a way which would be obscure to mm-hmm. a contemporary reader. But she just shows people living completely naturally as we all do, with no knowledge of the future. Yeah, uh, and it's it's a wonderful gift, and uh, it's something that I've tried to recreate myself. At the same time, you can't have your readers lost in this world where they don't understand what the sort of prevailing conditions are. That's right. So it's a a subtle sort of thing you have to do. You say you write extremely slowly. There's the famous story about James Joyce. A friend comes over and says, James, how's the writing going? And he says, oh, it's a pretty good day. I I, I wrote seven words. And and the friend says, well, James, that's good for you. He goes, yeah, but but I'm not sure if they're in the right order. (laughs) And (laughs) so how slow is slow for you? Um... I suppose it's a, a good day. It might be a sort of five or six hundred words, something like that. Really, yeah. and 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 is that a, a function of not moving forward with the sentence until you think that sentence is perfect? I suppose it is. I mean, I've, of course, when I'm in in the thick of doing it, I don't really quite analyse what it is that I yeah. am doing. Um, it's trying to be precise. I mean, there are so many things about style which are. Um, are possibly evident to the reader, but it's a complete mystery to the writer. Right, right. I do think that style is, is a kind of deep expression of personality, taste, whatever one means by that, all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that I am trying to produce a certain kind of movement in a sentence, and I know when, it, when I've got it right or when something's still wrong with it, and right. it has to be sort of smoothed and readjusted and the rhythm has to be right and the, the sound of the words has to be right. Um, I couldn't possibly define what that is, but I ju- it is some instinctual sort of thing that I find myself doing. And in my case, it, I'm afraid it just happens pitifully slowly. <laughs> when we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Alan Hollinghurst. We're talking about his book, The Sparshold Affair. We will get deep into this book when we come back in the next uh, segment. It's already a bestseller uh, in other parts of the world. It's being launched in North America right now. Uh, find it at uh, fine and probably not so fine bookstores everywhere uh, or online. I'm sure you can find. Is there a Kindle or a, an audio is, yeah. book, yeah. all that stuff? Both, yeah. Yeah, you can find it that way. Uh, when we 
come back, more with Alan Hollinghurst. Stay with us. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. Alan Hollinghurst joins us all the way from London. You just came in from London yesterday. I did. Yes. Welcome. Thank you. I, I hope you brought a coat. <laughs> it's a, a little coat, chillier. Scarves, gloves, hat. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the new novel is called The Sparse Holt Affair. It's in bookstores right now, already a big hit uh, around the world. Uh, you can check it out uh, in a physical copy, read it on a Kobo, uh, find it online. But uh, it, have a look at this. We're going to talk about it in just a second. I want to, one more question about the past, and then we will move to uh, forward to what we're supposed to be talking about. Um, you started writing. Uh, novels in the 1980s, and you announced yourself at the at that point as a gay writer. And now you say, it's not something that I give much thought to anymore. Uh, there are still gay themes throughout your books. Uh, what has changed? Is it you that's changed, or is it the world that has changed? Well, probably both. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the world into which this new book is being launched now is just so different from the one into which my First book, the swimming pool library, yeah. um, w w was launched exactly thirty years ago, actually. Mm. Um, and um, at that point, I, mean, I don't want to blow my own trumpet, but I mean, there, there hadn't really been any literary fiction in England, um, which just sort of dealt directly and sort of unapologetically with gay experience. Yeah, yeah. And um, you know, by the time that book came out, it was more than twenty years after the the passing of the. 1967 Sexual Offences right. Act, which decriminalised male homosexuality under rather special further conditions. <laughs> uh, and um, so it was a fascinating period of things being um, being sayable, mm -hmm. uh, which hadn't been before, but it was quite a slow process. Um, and I s found myself in the, this position, I think actually an incredibly fortunate one, of just thinking that there's this an amazing... Um, Fascinating, important yeah. area of, of human life, which which hasn't really been sort of written about in in fiction. Um, so um, I piled in, and um, and it was a peculiar moment too, because I started writing the book at the beginning of 1984, and during the first year of writing it, the AIDS crisis really broke right. broke in England, and the world that I was writing about was being sort of dramatically changed mm -hmm. in a way I could never have anticipated. Um, and I sort of had to make a decision about whether I would have that reflected in that book itself. And in the end, I, for various reasons, I didn't. And it's clearly set in 1983. Yes. Um, but the world, again, the world into which the book appeared was very different from the one in which I started writing it. You know, you're not writing about something fixed here. It's a constantly changing thing. Um, and they, there was, it was a difficult time, not only because of the crisis, but because of the sort of the social and political sort of uh, anxieties and um, things that were stirred up by it all. Um, and there was a, absurd bits of government legislation being brought in, banning the promotion of homosexuality right. by local. Um, you know, so my book, it was said, might have been banned from local libraries and that kind of thing. So it was a, it was a weird atmosphere, um, unrecognizable from from that of 2018, yes. sort of gay marriage and sort of general equality. You know, I mean, things aren't perfect, but it's the whole um, culture, and I think it's. You know, there are these great generational changes, aren't there, in, in sort of our social life, and I think this is this is one of them. Um, and there was a great sort of point and novelty and excitement about being specifically a gay writer at that moment in the late eighties, and I think you know through the years that followed. Um, but in the new situation, it's, it's 
not so remarkable right. a thing. <laughs> and I think young, you know, well, young writers now identify as queer and so on, which is something you know more elastic and complex. I think. Um, but I think gay fiction, gay lit as a, a genre, sort of rose in in response to those particular conditions then. And since it's rather sort of melted back into everything else. Yeah, you know. I think Tales of the City, exactly. Orlando, yeah. Funny yeah. Boy, you know, books yeah. like that, uh, um, certainly at the time that they were released were received much differently than they would be today. Absolutely, yeah. 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 It's been six years since your last novel, uh, The Stranger's Child, uh, you say you, you, you write slowly, you take a long time with this. It, it, did it take a little while to, d- d- is there a palate cleansing time after you finish a novel where you just have to let that one go before you can start another? Yes, I generally feel fairly kind of em- emptied out at the end of writing a book. And um, I'm very happy not writing a book. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, and then you know, there's a little gap and then all the business of, promoting the book and talking about it yeah. happens, which I enjoy. And, um, and it's nice after all those solitary years of writing the thing to get you out of the house. Yeah. to meet, meet the readers <laughs> and, and, um, and travel around. You know, it's an extraordinary aspect of being a, a writer these days that you're invited all over the world. Here, here, here I am in Toronto. Um, you know, it's, it's great. So I do all that. And in the background, something else is sort of building up. Mm-hmm. Um, but generally, there's a gap of year and a half or two years before I actually start writing the next one. And this novel is told in a number of different sections uh, across uh, more than half a century, 70 years. Uh, what part of the story came to you first, and then where do you start writing? Um, well, I like to write, and always did write up till now, <laughs> um, from the beginning to the end. Yeah. Um, but actually, in the, my previous book, The Strangest Child, I realized that there were certain bits earlier on that I couldn't write until I discovered at the end of the book what was going to be required of them in terms <laughs> right. of the narrative. And I think uh, that was another five-part book, and I think the last bits of it I wrote were parts of the second section. Which, uh, and um, so I do dart about a bit. Um, but as I say, I, I like to I have the, the sort of the plan of the whole thing in my mind. I can't remember now exactly what came to me first, but I, I certainly the... The Oxford of mm-hmm. 1940, uh, where, where the book opens. And where you yeah. studied. I was at Oxford, yeah. and, and Oxford and Oxford student life obviously has quite a, a rich literature and generally is uh, about um, you know, b- beautiful young people yeah. wasting three years of their life <laughs> and doing nothing very much, falling in love and going punting and things. Um, and I thought a really fascinating thing about this oddly little-known period in Oxford's history during during the war, um, was that all these conditions were changed, mm-hmm. um, that um, there were far fewer students anyway, and those who came up, rather than coming up for three or four years, came up generally for one year, uh, at the end of which they knew they were going to be called up for military service. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was this sense that you know, the Blitz was going on in London at the same time as this first section of my novel, but Oxford was at a straight, only 50 miles away, but at a strange remove. Right. Um, and this sort of of suspended um, anxiety, waiting for an uncertain future. Um, 
and the peculiar conditions of the blackout, of course, so that you know, at, at dusk every day all lights are blacked out, um, which was, of course, provides marvellous cover for all kinds of carry-on. <laughs> and, um, and the fascinating thing that Oxford was just close enough to London for various quite important things to be sort of evacuated to it. So the war ministries took over various of the Oxford colleges and MI5 at this time split its operations in half into what they called town and country. Right. <laughs> the country half went to Blenheim Palace just outside Oxford. All these things play, play little parts in the, the story of this part of the book. Um, so it was very, very different from, from the conventional image of Oxford in, yeah. in fiction and, and oddly little written about. So it seemed to me a, a, a potentially rather fascinating period to, and to bring together people under these rather extreme conditions, you know. And there's a wonderful book called The Love Charm of Bombs uh, by an English writer called Lara Feigl about the effect of the Blitz on a, on a number of writers such as Graham Greene and so forth. And, and a tremendously sort of erotic thing because here were people, you know, who knew they might be going to be killed yep. tonight, you know, um, and they were thrust together in the dark. <laughs> and they were absolutely just going to make the most of it. Um, so it's a very heightened and charged sort of atmosphere. It's the sexy part of the Blitz that yeah. you don't hear that much That's about. Exactly. <laughs> when we come back, we'll continue the conversation uh, with Alan Hollingsworth. We'll also talk about uh, the Sparsholt affair in uh, greater detail. We have to talk about the scandal that kind of fuels a good deal of this. And I want to talk about that, your handling of it. And I also want to talk about a little bit scandal in in the new world. We don't seem to be a scandalized. We seem to be outraged about everything, but we're not scandalized by things as much anymore. Uh, so stay with us. More with Alan Hollinghurst when we come back. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Richard Krauss. Alan Hollinghurst is my guest. The book is called The Sparse Holt Affair. Uh, it is a bestseller around the world, now newly released in North America as a physical book. You can read it on Kobo. Find it at Amazon. You can buy it anywhere you like. Uh, check it out. This is a book that spans decades. Uh, it is uh, a book that at, at one section, and during one section, there is a scandal that kind of rocks things a little bit. And I loved how you handled the scandal. I'm uh, a, a, a movie critic by trade. And I like being shown things but not told things. I don't mind a movie that ends with a question mark. I don't mind uh, being allowed to imagine things. Mm. I think that a different writer may have detailed the the ins and outs of the scandal that you describe, but not over-describe in the book. So tell me a little bit about placing this thing in the in the in the center of the of the narrative and yet not really telling us much about it. It's a nervy move. <laughs> it is, yes. Um I, I tried to tell you even less about it, but there were protests when, it, when my editor first, first read it. Um, yeah, my interest was never primarily in the scandal itself, but um, in the people um, centrally involved in it. Um, in the, the the first part of the book, we meet this man, David Sparsholt, when he's very young, and he's sort of just, he's very handsome and sexy, but perhaps only just beginning to understand the power that he has right. over other people. And he'll, be, he'll become a sort of charismatic um, pilot in the war, he'll then become a successful businessman, and he seems to have everything going for him. But he's also someone particularly liable to get into a fix. <laughs> um, and um, he does get into a fix, um, 
between two of the sections of the book. So we don't actually learn about the... Um, we we the see scan- the ripples of, of the effect of the scandal, but yeah. is it a testament to your confidence as a novelist that you thought, I can get away with this? I, the reader doesn't need to know. Well, I wanted to create that strange presence that scandals have as they sort of fade into the past. You know, right. We first learn about the Sparshelt affair eight years after it's happened. Um, and that way, you know, that we remember um, various, I mean, the, obviously the Profumo affair was, was our, you know, which is something much bigger than the Sparshelt affair. But usually there's one person, and in this yeah. case, the glamorous David Sparshelt, who becomes <laughs> the sort of poster boy for the scandal. And, um, and people can't quite remember eight years on what it was. You yeah. know, it was that. There was something. There, yeah, there was something to do with an MP, and yeah. you know, wasn't it something to do with and the sort of the gay sex thing? Yeah. I, don't, I don't know what. Uh, and um, so it's a sort of slowly fading sort of stain in the public. Yeah. And um, what I was much more interested in was the effect um, actually on David Sparshot's son, right. Donnie, who who's, we then meet as a young gay man in his early 20s coming to London and trying to lead. Succeeding in leading, leading a, a sort of open life as a, as a gay man, um, but overshadowed, made anxious by um, the presence of his father and this sort of gay sex scandal in his past. Um, and he has this unusual name, so that anyone mm-hmm. who meets him says, there's a sort of double take. Yeah, like, so yeah. you must be related. And so some people, this is rather a turn on, of course. They're, they're, they're fascinated to, to meet the son of this figure. Um, <laughs> So um, yeah, it's it's really about the the kind of repercussions of the affair, uh, and which are huge, of course, on David Sparshelt's own life. Um, but there's a, again, it's this generational change we were talking about earlier. Jo- Johnny is able to embrace new freedoms, which his father uh, simply can't, um, and his desires have been sort of stigmatized, punished, and um, so. Uh, and there's a scene sort of late in the book when fa- father and son sort of come together again and Johnny sort of tries to make something happen between them, but the father always finally resists. So. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, now, in the world that we live in now, uh, scandal is sort of uh, uh, not, I don't know, there's something in the Perfumo affair. You mentioned the Perfumo affair. Uh, Christine Keeler, who was a, a woman dating the minister of, of war, the British minister, and a, a Russian double agent at the same time was the connection and the thing yeah. that brought down the Macmillan government. Uh, huge scandal. There's uh, people write about this. They It was headline news. I mean, 1963, it had everything, you know, sex, drugs, maybe not rock and roll just yet, but almost, yeah. you know. Uh, but in people, people were fascinated. I'm finding that these days, as I said earlier, we're outraged about everything. We live in a culture of outrage, but I don't think that people feel like a sex scandal, like the Stormy Daniels, Donald Trump sex scandal, doesn't seem to be that big a deal. I mean, maybe in the Harvey Weinstein case it was, but that was a much bigger movement. Yes. But individually, I don't think people no, care think so much. desensitized mm-hmm. to it in a way. I mean, scandal has so much more power, I suppose, before because the private life in general was something which was much less known about, right. you know, and, and public figures, you know, had a certain eminence. And we, I suppose there was always a, a sort of gutter press and, and so on. But there was also a greater res- respect for the privacy of individuals. Um, I mean, I think that's something you see mapped out over the course of this novel, um, that it starts in a time when the, the, the private things that are happening are so intensely private yes. that nobody else will know about them for decades. 